Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. We have with us today law professor Nancy Marcus, with whom we will discuss topics such as bisexual erasure and the legal problems of polyamorous folks, plus much more. Let's dive in. We are so happy to have with us today Professor Nancy Marcus, who is a professor at the California Western School of Law in San Diego, and indeed is colleagues with our former guest, Erin Shealy, whom you will remember from episode 11, entitled Dating as a Criminal Law Professor. Nancy has a JD from Case Western Reserve School of Law, where I myself at one point taught for a few years, and then she went on to get LLM and SJD degrees at the University of Wisconsin School of Law. Nancy has taught appellate practice at Case Western and constitutional law at Indiana Tech Law School. She has also litigated toxic torts cases. She did that for three years. She uh, litigated First Amendment cases for four years and has worked on a variety of other types of cases. She's also been engaged in extensive public policy work, including on LGBTQ plus issues, such as as an attorney for Lambda Legal and abortion rights for the National Abortion Federation. She is the co-founder of Bylaw, the first national association of bisexual lawyers and law students, and is the author of the Legally Bi column published by Bisexuality Magazine. And you can find all that info in our show notes. She is on the board of directors for the Chosen Family Law Center, which engages in groundbreaking work protecting the rights of polyamorous and other non-traditional families. She has also served on the board of a number of LGBTQ plus organizations, and has published scholarship on LGBTQ plus rights and in many other areas. Nancy, welcome to Strangers on the Internet. We want to hear today both about your personal life and professional expertise. So why don't you tell our listeners a bit about how your own dating life has developed, including how you came to be openly bi and poly? Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me on the show. I'm absolutely delighted to be here talking about these really important issues that are not talked about enough. So. It is political is personal. Absolutely. And I'm happy to share my personal life to begin with. I have been out as bisexual since age 20. So for three decades, I've been out as bi a lot longer than I've been out as polyamorous. But if I'm honest with myself, I've really always been both. Um, It just took me a few decades longer to embrace the poly um, label and to understand what that means for me. And some of that is I've really had to wrestle with some internal kind of parallel struggles and questioning in in my life and identity. So when I first came out as bi, it wasn't automatically easy because I was really confused thinking, how can I be bisexual if I've only dated guys for the first five years of my dating life? And I was happily dating men. What does it mean to be bisexual? And then, you know, three decades later, I'm asking the parallel line of questions of myself. How can I be polyamorous? if I've previously been in monogamous relationships and been so happily. And I don't know why it took me so long to realize that the answer to both is the same, that being bisexual doesn't mean you have to be dating both men and women at the same time to be happy. It just means you're capable of being attracted to either. 
And similarly, for me at least, being polyamorous doesn't mean I have to be dating more than one person to be polyamorous. It just means I'm capable of that. So that said, big disclaimer, I am not answering for all people. People have absolutely different experiences around this. And for some people, I think polyamory does mean they're only happy if they're actively being polyamorous, that they can't be happy being monogamous. Um, But for me, being polyamorous is like being bisexual. It's about being open to, to many options in my dating. I can give you more specifics about how my dating life evolved if you want to hear them. <laughs> okay, they're nodding vigorously over there. Uh, so basically, yes, I've always been poly. I just didn't call it that. So I dated multiple people at the same time in high school, in college. It felt natural. I didn't have a name for it. But I, I always liked to date you know, multiple people. I was comfortable doing that. Then after I came out as bisexual, I found myself really drawn to butch lesbians. And I would date butch lesbians monogamously for years at a time. And I identified as monogamous. And that's kind of just what was expected. When you date a butch lesbian, they expect you to be monogamous with them. And especially, they don't really want to share me with a guy. That's just not even negotiable. So I kind of defaulted to monogamy without even really thinking about it. But when I wasn't dating butch lesbians, I'd kind of go back to dating multiple people simultaneously again. And again, without really thinking about what that meant or how I identified. And I had been in a couple of situations in my dating life in my 30s and 40s when I ended up in kind of, one was accidental, one was intentional, love triangles, where I would be dating a man and a woman. One of them was because I just really did kind of fall in love with two people at the same time and I couldn't choose and I wouldn't choose. And didn't really work because, you know, one person was absolutely monogamous in that situation and she was really sacrificing and not happy about it. So that ended up in some serious heartbreak because it was what we call like a mixed poly mono relationship that just was not good. The other one was intentional because I was really falling for a woman who was polyamorous and she wouldn't date me unless I was dating someone else. Like she absolutely insisted on polyamory. And that was a bit more successful. That one lasted a a longer time. And uh, I was dating her and a man at the same time. And we were all absolutely intentional and positive about it. That one too, though, ended up ending, ironically, because of some jealousy on her part, even though she was the one who insisted on polyamory. So after that, I kind of shied away from identifying as polyamory because I hadn't had it successfully work before, at least when I called it that. And then the pandemic happened. So... After I got my two vaccines and my two boosters and it finally felt safe to get out there and start dating again, I mean, I, I was one of those people who was very much a hermit at the you know, first year and a half, two years of the pandemic. I lived alone. I didn't touch another human being for almost a year. And that felt really awful and weird. So when it felt safe to get out there and touch human beings again, I was hungry, you know, for physical affection, for dating, for all of that. You know, kissing someone for the first time in three years was terrifying. It was scarier than sex, right? Because the pandemic was scary. It is scary um, still, but not as scary as it was thanks to, you know, boosters and vaccines. So I start dating again. I really throw myself out there and I start running into people who identify as polyamorous and, you know, wanting to date them. So I decide to give it another chance. And this time it just worked. It just worked. So... I was dating several people a couple of summers ago when I first moved to San Diego, um, very happily, and it it worked out because everybody, again, identified as polyamorous, so everybody was on the same page about it. And 
again, I'm kind of at this point thinking, well, why haven't I always called myself polyamorous? And I finally solved that puzzle as to why I hadn't identified as poly before, but I really was, which is, you know, when I was dating butch lesbians, I defaulted to monogamy because that's pretty much what they insisted on. I basically meet people where they are. So if I'm dating someone, I'm, I'm in love with someone who's monogamous, I can be monogamous and I'm really, I'm fulfilled. Just like if I'm in love with a man, I can date a man. I don't need to also be dating a woman and vice versa. So once I realized that, then I finally owned the label polyamory because I am capable of being polyamorous. I am capable of loving more than one person at a time. So if I'm also honest with myself, however, it doesn't, it doesn't always translate to polyamory in a literal way because polyamory means loving multiple people. And I don't love everybody I date, just like a monogamous person doesn't necessarily love everybody they're dating when they're dating around. Um, so there's different degrees of it. Sometimes it's closer to ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy when I wouldn't necessarily call it love. So there's varying degrees of types of relationships, of degrees of love, of, you know, what I'm, how I'm relating to any given person. But these days I, I'm absolutely more in love and I'm experiencing a deeper kind of love than I ever have in my life with another poly person. And so we are each other's primary partners. Uh, we both date other people, but the love we have for each other is very real. It's very strong. It's as strong as, you know, what I've had in past relationships. We do care about the other people we date, but what we have is absolutely love. Now we started off when we met each other, we both identified as like solo poly, meaning we weren't in a primary relationship with any. We were both just dating around lots of people and, and we were happy with that. And I don't know, seven, eight months later, after we'd started dating, we finally kind of acknowledged that we really were primary partners. We acknowledged that thanks to one of his other partners because he was on a date with a woman and he was talking about me and kind of gushing about me. And she said, you realize that Nancy's your primary partner, don't you? And he realized, oh, I guess she is. <laughs> so thanks to her, we kind of finally said it out loud that we really, you know, had developed that strong of a bond that we were primary partners and we really do put each other first. And it wasn't until that point that I really felt the kind of security in our relationship that I've previously felt in monogamous relationships. And since then, we've taken our relationship to so many next levels. It, it really has become the most secure relationship and meaningful relationship I've ever had, whether monogamous or, or polyamorous. Um, so <laughs> my poor mom, <laughs> who I think might be listening to this at some point, but um, you know, sometimes I describe how close Ken and I have gotten and how our relationship has gotten stronger, how now we've been dating almost two years and we've evolved from that honeymoon stage to this more comfortable, steady, secure place. And I said that to her recently and she said, oh, so when did you start becoming monogamous? And I had to say, no, mom, we're still poly. We'll, we'll always be polyamorous, but it's still, yeah, that's still the healthiest relationship I've ever had, but yeah, we're still poly. So it's kind of counterintuitive to some people, but it's true. It's what works for, for me, for us. So that's, that's my personal journey. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing. And I'm so happy for you that you are in such a happy relationship, as you said, perhaps like the most healthy and happy relationship of your life. That's, that's really wonderful. I know I have several questions and I would imagine Irina does as well. Um, one is though, you mentioned ethical non-monogamy and polyamory. And would you say that those terms are 
typically meaning the same thing or different things. And I understand, you know, you're not able to speak for a whole community, but to you or in your understanding, what are the differences between them? Sure. There there are differences between polyamory and ethical non-monogamy. And, and, the, and a lot of the definitions really do depend on the person. You know, I, I'm not really the expert. I can't speak for everybody. And my terms may mean something different than somebody else's. But to be ethically non-monogamous is... There's so many different ways to do that. I mean, some people identify as swingers and they adamantly do not identify as polyamorous because they don't develop, you know, intense, meaningful, long-term relationships with people that they call love. But short of swinging, again, a lot of people just date around, whether they identify as monogamous or non-monogamous. They don't call it ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy, but there's a 2014 study that estimated that more than 20% of the people in the United States have engaged in ethical non-monogamy at some point in their life. They just don't use those titles, just like I shied away from the poly title for so many years. So another thing to think about there is that polyamory and ethical non-monogamy, there are differences, but it's not really a strict dichotomy either. Because again, if I'm being honest with myself, when I'm dating around, you know, sometimes I really do feel love for more than one person. And sometimes I'm dating around and I'm not necessarily going to feel love for everybody I'm dating. It really does come in degrees and it depends on, on any given situation. So not every poly relationship to me is necessarily love per se. Sometimes it's kind of more of a hybrid. So I don't necessarily love every single person I'm dating, but I absolutely 100% love my primary partner. I mean, that's without question. And then there's also, you know, so many differences between types of relationships, types of poly relationships, even. And I can get into that if you want, or. Yeah, if you'd be interested to, because something that we've seen a lot of people comment on in who are actively in the dating world right now, particularly who are on the apps, they say everyone's saying ENM on the apps these days, ethically non-monogamous. And so that's definitely a trend in terms of how people, at least who are using the app to date, are describing themselves. Of course, there is also controversy of are they being ethically non-monogamous or just non-monogamous? And um, so are they truly being open with everyone involved? And is there any sense of coercion? And so this is definitely something we're seeing more of in terms of how people self-describe on the apps. So anything that you would want to add as far as the differences, as well as if I can just slip in one other question as well, which is, do you think there's anything in particular like going on in society that has led to an increase in people suddenly describing themselves as ENM? Because for you, describing yourself as polyamorous, like you said, that was really when you realized, oh, it doesn't have to be what I'm doing right now that defines how I describe myself. It's how I feel in general. It's kind of what I would be open to. And, and so I wonder, anyway, your thoughts on if there's been some change in society that leads to why people are more describing themselves this way and any differences you could differentiate of, like on a spectrum of ENM polyamory. Yeah, two different questions. I'm, I'm not sure which one I want to answer first because they're both such great questions. The first one, I do think that there are people, next generation I'm sounding like an old person now, but the kids these days are so cool, right? I mean, they just, they're open to so much more in general. More kids are identifying as bisexual than ever before, which I'm thrilled about. Some of it maybe is because of the dating sites themselves and the kinds of options that they allow. 
people to choose in describing themselves. Um, but you're right. I do see a lot of people identifying as ENM. But then you do have to take that to the next level and really dig into that. And say, well, what does that mean to you? Because it definitely does mean different things to different people. And if I'm talking to somebody on a dating site who says, oh, incidentally, my my wife doesn't know, that absolutely closes down the conversation. That is not ethical monogamy. I don't care by whose definition, if you're cheating on your spouse, that's not ethical. I'm sorry. So yeah, but ethical non-monogamy, I find that most people who do identify as poly or ethical non-monogamy really are pretty ethical about it, meaning they're above board, they're honest, they're not cheating on their partners. And so that is, that's kind of a constant to be ethically non-monogamous or to be polyamorous. A lot of it is about communication. So, and, and that's kind of across the board. And so I think people are getting better about that. People are getting more open. And, but then there are, like I said, different types of even poly dating. So for example, among polyamorous people, there are some people who practice what they call relationship anarchy. There are people who engage in, in hierarchical polyamory. Okay, so that's one set of differences. So people who engage in what they call relationship anarchy, they have values that are very non-hierarchical. They really do believe that you know everybody should be kind of equal and 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 you don't treat somebody as like a possession or an entitlement or, or you know have this kind of level of entitlement that they think that you know a hierarchical relationship stru- structure can create and, and they're also kind of like more anti-rule and, and anti-expectations so you just connect with each person you know on their own terms without you know weighing people against each other in a sense so it's based on the premise that we're all autonomous we don't own each other people shouldn't be ranked that kind of thing then there are those of us who engage in a more hierarchical polyamory, meaning like when I say that, you know, my partner and I are primary partners, that is hierarchical. I am valuing him above other relationships and I'm doing that intentionally because that's what works for us. That's what I need to feel secure. So in a more hierarchical polyamorous relationship, often you have primary partners often, but not always, there are more rules and boundaries, but there's a lot of variations. So For example, in my relationship with my partner, when we met, we were solo poly. We both identified almost as kind of relationship anarchists because we just dated whoever we wanted to date. We didn't really have to answer to anybody. And then we kind of, well, fell in love and got more serious about each other. But we both still wanted to keep dating other people for various reasons. So even though we are definitely hierarchical, we definitely prioritize each other. We also kind of still resist making rules. And in that sense, we still have some elements of that kind of anarchy structure to our relationship where we don't want to restrict each other. We don't want to limit each other. So we're kind of part anarchist, part hierarchical. We're kind of a hybrid. So everybody does it differently. And then there are other differences between types of poly relationships. Some people like what they call kitchen table polyamory. Some people are don't ask, don't tell. So what do I mean by that? Kitchen table polyamory is what it sounds like. It means that your partners and your partner's partners, you all get along. You're all cool just hanging out at the kitchen table talking with each other. So this level of comfort where everybody's comfortable meeting each other and interacting with each other. Don't ask, don't tell is when people are really not comfortable knowing all the details or being, you know, having to be face to face with their partners, other partners. And I'll, there's a word for that called metamors. <laughs> so I may not want to see all my metamors or hear all about them. And 
my relationship is definitely not don't ask, don't tell, because we communicate our asses off with each other. We really don't have any secrets from each other. And we're, there's not a lot of jealousy. So we're very comfortable. Now that said, we're not necessarily kitchen table in reality because of all of our partners don't necessarily want to meet us. But I think we would both be open to that, you know, if everybody were dating more. And then there's other forms. There are differences in forms of polyamorous relationships. So some people form polycules where everybody's dating everybody and everybody's interacting with everybody. Everybody is in relationship. And then some people date separately, which is more me and my partner. Again, we're kind of defaulting to this. This isn't our intention, but we're kind of defaulting to I tend to date people separately from who he's dating. But we're definitely open to to dating, you know, someone in common as well. So those are some of the differences between different types of, of poly relationships. So, yeah, lots of different variations out there. It can mean very different things to different people. So I have I definitely have a lot of questions. So what one of them is, it seems to me that a lot of people, including quite a few academics, seem to keep their poly practices and life under wraps. Do you think there's still a lot of stigma attached to it, Nancy? What's going on here? Absolutely. <laughs> it's maybe the last love that dare not speak its name. It's it's scary to be out as polyamorous. Absolutely. Because it is it's not really something that's understood or fully accepted. So I've been out as bisexual, like I said, for decades, but I'm just now coming out as polyamorous and it's, it's kind of hard to even figure out how to come out as polyamorous sometimes. Coming out as bisexual is hard enough because people tend to assume that you're gay or straight depending on who you're, the gender of your partner is. So if they see you're in a same-sex couple, they assume that you're gay. And so if you're bisexual, you're constantly having to correct people and come out of the closet over and over again. But I've done that successfully for decades now, largely because you know as a leader in the bi movement, who runs by law, who writes about bisexual erasure. I'm just so visibly bi all the time. I'm kind of like a professional bi, right? So it's easy for me to be out as bi because of the work that I do, you know, simultaneously fighting for bi visibility and being a bi person. It's harder being out as polyamorous. How do you come out as polyamorous? It's not something that just casually you can kind of slip into conversation. So I do intentionally, you know, I we have at law schools, we have the barrister's ball, which is like the prom at the end of the year that the faculty come to along. So I made a point of bringing a female date to this year's barrister's ball just to be a little more visible because I do talk about my primary partner a lot. And it's not the end of the world if people assume that he's the only person I'm dating. And yet at the same time, I, I do want to be honest. You know, I don't want to hide who I am. So how to come out as polyamory is tricky. You know, it just, it just doesn't come up in conversation naturally. And then, of course, there is stigma. There is a fear that people will judge me for it because, you know, some people are just going to snicker and assume that means I have sex with a lot of people. And that's so not what it's about. But if that's how people translate it, I have to know that that is how I'm being viewed. And that's, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability in that. Can you talk about a little more about maybe some of the stereotypes you've had to combat either as a bi person or as a poly person? I would imagine if I'm thinking about it, because one thing I would, I'm wondering if you have to experience aside from people just wondering, do you just have a bunch of sex all the time? And also, do you imagine asking somebody that? But anyway, um, is also wondering if that makes it okay to hit on you, assuming that, oh, well, even if I know if you're in a relationship, if I'm interested in you, but, and I know that you're poly, 
um, can I hit on you as well? I'm wondering what other stereotypes there might be that you've encountered. So you hit the nail on the head. Being polyamorous is, you know, sexualized in people's minds, but so is being bisexual. And there's a lot of overlap there. So long before I came out as polyamorous, like I said, I've been out as bisexual all along. But when I was working for for a firm at one point, for example, and I I came out to my my partner, uh, the one of the law firm partners as bisexual, he immediately started treating me as one of the guys and wanted me to tell him all the time, like, which women I thought was hot and, you know, and wanted to share details of my sex life and my attractions. And, you know, on some level, it felt kind of cool to be treated like another guy and be part of that club. But, you know, that was vastly outweighed by how disgusting that was and how he was just automatically sexualizing my identity. And so, yeah, a lot of a lot of men tend to when you come out as bisexual, you know, assume that means you're going to have a threesome with them. And so there's then there's that sliding, the slippery slope assumption of if you're bisexual, you must be polyamorous. And so then it gets really tricky because, yes, there's overlap. Absolutely, there's overlap. But a lot of bi people are 100 percent monogamous. They have no desire, you know, to delve into polyamory. And so in coming out as both bisexual and polyamorous, I also want to honor that that's a false assumption that because you're bisexual, you must also be poly. So that's a stereotype. It's a stereotype that I embrace. It's, it is my identity, but that's not true of all bi people. And another assumption is, you know, whether you're bi or you're, you're poly, there's a magazine that I really loved in the 1990s that helped me embrace my bisexual identity it was called Anything That Moves. And of course the implication there is that we will have sex, <laughs> whether bi or poly with anything that moves. And honestly, this is, this is my true experience. I do think that, bi, that poly people tend to be a lot pickier than monogamous people. And I'm very picky in who I date. I have, I, I absolutely will not have sex with anything that moves. It couldn't be farther from the truth. So that's not true. Promiscuity is not about sexual orientation. And it's not about even having more than one lover. I think it might be about gender, <laughs> but that's a conversation for a different day, right? Um, I, I think you can tell more usually from someone's gender, whether they're more inclined to be promiscuous than by their sexual orientation or even by whether they're polyamorous or not. So lots of false assumptions there about promiscuity. And then in my career, you know, even as a bisexual person, I face some discrimination but more often from other gay people than from straight people. So because my work, you know, has involved work, you know, with the LGBT community and I've had gay colleagues over the years, I've been criticized for not being gay enough. So that's a unique kind of discrimination that bisexual people face that people don't really realize that we face a lot of the time. You know, I've been told that even my talking about bisexual erasure is offensive to gay people because it detracts from the real gay issues or it divides us or whatever. But I'm speaking my reality and my truth and bisexual people really do kind of face a dual discrimination, you know, and then we kind of, you know, get misunderstood or attacked from, from both directions at once. And so it is important, I think, for bi people to speak their truths. And then in my personal life, I've had you know, a lot of situations where lesbians won't date me because they assume they have these stereotypes in their minds about what a bi person is. So they assume that I'm a higher risk for an STD or I'm going to cheat on them. 
But in my years and years and years of dating women, often monogamously, you know, for six, seven years at a time, I've never cheated on a woman. I've never had an STD. And so even more today that I identify as polyamorous, it's even harder to find a lesbian who will date me because of all of these stereotypical assumptions of how I'm going to treat them that just simply aren't true. So those are just a few stereotypes, but there's, there's so many more. Kenji Yoshino wrote a really great Law Review article on bisexual erasure, where he goes through a lot of the different stereotypes that bisexual people face, and he, and he goes into the epistemology of it and why, why he thinks, you know, what the root of it all is, and it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. But the truth is, bisexual people, we threaten dichotomies. We threaten black and white boxes that are very, very comfortable to people. And like I said, if I'm dating somebody who's of the same gender, and somebody sees me holding their hand, walking down the sidewalk, they're going to assume that I'm a lesbian. And if I'm dating someone who's a different gender and they see us walking down the street, they're going to assume I'm straight. And what Kenji Yoshino exposes in his live article is bisexuals threaten that comfort that those assumptions provide to people. You know, both straight and gay people kind of are in contract with each other and in, 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 in finding comfort in those assumptions that bi people threaten. So same thing with poly people. We threaten all of that too. We don't fit easily into black and white boxes. And even my discussion of what being poly means is no matter what I say, it's going to be oversimplifying it because it means so many different things to so many different people. So both being bi and being poly to me is about embracing the gray areas of life, is dancing in the gray areas, not being afraid of throwing open those black and white boxes and leaping out of them with joy and saying, you know what, those don't apply to me. And it takes courage to defy dichotomies and to defy those boxes and expectations, but it's so liberating at the same time. Along the lines of what you've uh, mentioned, um, Nancy, uh, so you're talking about how you're able to be in a poly relationship, you're able to be in a monogamous relationship. It's not necessarily it's not necessarily the case for you personally that you're going to be unhappy in one versus the other. And for other people, it might be different. So would you say that polyamory is a lifestyle per se, as opposed to an orientation, or is it something in the middle? So I think a lot of people are sort of confused about all that also. So that's a really intriguing question and there's no short, easy answer to it, but I will say this about the question itself. Okay. So lifestyle, is it a lifestyle? What is a lifestyle? So that's how people actually used to ask uh, the question about being gay or bisexual. Is being gay just a lifestyle? And the more that sexual orientation is respected as a valid category, the less that question is asked, right? So I guess today, poly people are where gay, gay and bi people once were. So we're in a position of having to explain whether our way of loving is just a lifestyle, whatever that means, or if it's an actual orientation. So as far as the importance of the word orientation, in a legal sense, as a lawyer who has worked on lawsuits and laws that are designed to protect people from discrimination on the basis of quote unquote sexual orientation. So orientation, what the law generally recognizes sexual orientation to be is usually orientation defined by which gender or gender someone is attracted to. Polyamory, in contrast, is about how many people someone is potentially attracted to. So splitting hairs, is that an important difference? It depends on who you ask. So to some, yeah, the difference between being polyamorous and more traditionally understood sexual orientations, 
those differences are not as important as their similarities, that they really are kind of the same type of concept. Both involve fundamentally intimate personal life choices that should not be infringed upon or should not be the basis of discrimination. Both Polly and other queer people would say that we are born this way, which in a sense is an orientation. And the reality is there probably are more similarities than differences, but will the law catch up to that fact? I mean, this is one of the situations where you really have to carefully weigh whether societal acceptance needs to come first before we expect the law to catch up with it. Because the truth is there's a lot of resistance from people of various political stripes um, and interests to formally recognizing polyamory as a sexual orientation. I mean, heck, I still have to work hard to get people to understand that even bisexuality is a valid sexual orientation. So there's, there's a lot of education that needs to be done around that. It's interesting because I, I'm really getting a really clear sense from the way you're talking about these things about like what might be the difference between orientation and lifestyle and how it relates to sexual orientation or, you know, what was wondered about, is it just a lifestyle before, you know, because I think in both cases with sexual orientation and sexuality, we're fed, or at least we have been historically, a very loud message from society about this is what the expectation is. And so for some of us, it does take a while to realize, oh, maybe I was so busy just trying to live up to the expectation that I wasn't bothering to ask myself, does that actually feel genuine or right to me? And so it might take time for people like uh, I'm somebody who certainly grew up thinking monogamy was the deal. That's what you should be. And, um, and that was the expectation. It never even occurred to me until I was well into adulthood that it, well, I mean, it occurred to me that you could date or you could be in a monogamous relationship, but it didn't occur to me that there was like this other option. And, you know, when you think about it, the idea of, as you said, not only what I'm currently doing, but what feels comfortable to me what I'd be what kind of lifestyle feels most comfortable to me or how would I prefer to live my life maybe that's your orientation is where you're where what feels right to you is your orientation so this is really neat to hear the language you're using I think this is really going to help people make sense of some things that seem to really confuse people mm -hmm. and since you describe it that way that also kind of connects to there's different ways to describe bisexuality there's the Kinsey scale, which doesn't even actually have bisexuality listed on the scale. But, you know, there are some people who look at it kind of as a, you know, horizontal line. You're either closer to being gay or you're closer to being straight. But then there's the Klein grid. Fritz Klein is another sociologist who has a more complex, multi-factor way of looking at bisexuality. And he has people identify based on their orientation, meaning their inclination, their expression, their identity, you know, and all of these things play out in different ways. So a lot of people may have always had fantasies about being with people of, you know, the same gender, but have never expressed it. Are they bisexual? Sure, but maybe in a different way. So, I mean, sexual orientation to some degree is a social construct. It is what we say it is uh, because there's always been bisexuality. Look back to, you know, ancient Greece and, and, and Plato and the relationships that, you know, people have always had that are very complicated and that we're not strictly heterosexual, but we have created these identities. We have created these labels. And what's beautiful about the next generation is they may not need those labels so much. They are more fluid in how they identify. 
which always kind of is a conundrum for me because I fought so hard for the label bisexual to be embraced, to be recognized, to be counted, to be visible. And at the same time, I absolutely applaud the younger generation who's fighting for the need not to have labels at all. So it is fluid. And it is a, I think it is important to keep in mind that all of this kind of is a social construct. Thinking about your own experiences and and what you've learned about those of others when it comes to poly relationship dynamics, what do you think leads to healthy versus unhealthy dynamics? Even understanding that for different people, the poly relationship itself might be a number of different things as you were explaining about relationship anarchy and and all of these different things so that all keeping all of that in mind like what you know, what advice might you give to others that might be you know entering uh their first poly relationships so that one is almost an easy question <laughs> because the answer is absolutely communication 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 A healthy poly relationship is one where you're honest, where you communicate. Respect is important and empathy is important, but communication is really the key to a lot of it. There are people who should question why they're getting into it and and make sure they're doing it for the right reasons. It's kind of like people who have kids to try to save a marriage. If you're in a relationship that's rocky and it's gotten stale and boring and you think that maybe opening up your relationship might save it because it's going to add some excitement. If the relationship doesn't have a solid foundation, it could kill it. If your relationship is strong with somebody and you decide, Hey, wouldn't it be wonderful if we, then it can make a strong relationship even stronger, but it can absolutely kill a relationship that's weak to begin with. So there's, there's that to keep in mind. But so it does come back to communication though, you know, the partners who are, considering exploring it for the first time really need to be honest with each other about why they're doing it what they're expecting what their fears and vulnerabilities are and you know talking honestly about jealousy in an empathetic respectful way but whether preemptively thinking okay if we're you know having to witness each other seeing someone with somebody else or even thinking of you on a date with somebody else and i start to feel jealous what does that mean Is that a game changer? Does that stop everything? Or do we work through it? And how do we work through it? And some of the best, I'm actually getting emotional now, but seriously, some of the best communication I've ever had in a relationship has been with my primary partner as we talked about jealousy. And then when the jealousy has popped up, which is kind of inevitable, I I think there are some polyamorous people who, who who honestly don't get jealous, but I think they're rare. Most polyamorous people acknowledge, oh yeah, jealousy happens, absolutely. And then you talk about it, you, you openly bring it out to the table and then, you know, you reaffirm each other, you reassure each other, you find security in other ways. And so jealousy in and of itself is not a bad thing. It is something that happens and, and you communicate through it. So now I don't even remember what the original question was. You just asked, <laughs> but, um, I guess the types of people who can do it. So you have to be able to communicate without getting angry, without getting defensive. Oh, how dare you be jealous? Why don't you trust me? You know, you have to be able to really be vulnerable, be respectful. So it does take a lot of maturity. And some people just may not have that. But when you do and it works, it can be a really beautiful thing. That's really lovely. Now, I have to tell you, when you talk to a psychologist on a podcast, sometimes they come in with psychology-ish questions. And so when you said 
you were getting emotional now. Can I ask you, was it, was the emotion coming about feeling vulnerable, thinking about the idea of jealousy, or was the emotion more about feeling good that you were able to have, to feel heard and seen in this conversation with your partner or something else? What was, what was that emotion about? A lot of the way, just the latter, um, I mean, I've had a lot of relationships in the past, monogamous relationships, where I was scared of opening up and expressing my fears and insecurities because of what the reaction might be. And so here I am in a relationship that is polyamorous, where he goes out and dates other people, and I go out and date other people, and we're constantly being vulnerable to each other. And But it's never, ever scary because the communication is so good, because the respect is so there that it just takes my breath away, that in the end, it was never about monogamy or polyamory. It was just about finding the right person and the right relationship and the right kind of communication and respect. And so you can do that, whether it's a polyamorous or a monogamous relationship. So it is, yeah, I think we both kind of just have to step back sometimes and just, it does take our breath away sometimes and how healthy this feels when you wouldn't think it would, because we've never, neither one of us, we're both pretty new to owning polyamory to, you know, and, and so we're both constantly surprised at how healthy it feels, I think. That's really lovely. Would you say there's anything else? So you said, you know, there needs to be a solid foundation in the relationship if polyamory is going to be a positive thing for the relationship and for the people involved. And you also said people who are able to talk openly, honestly, empathically, respectfully, who are comfortable being vulnerable with each other, who can have conversations about jealousy. Is there anything more you would add maybe less about the relationship itself, but more about any individual or personality characteristics that you think, even if somebody was orientationally, if that's a word, inclined towards polyamory, if like it made sense to them as a way to live, but something else about their personality means that that would be hard for them. Is there any other personality characteristics that you would say, eh, if these things are true of you, this might be particularly challenging for you? I think so. I hate to say that there are people who can't do it. I'll tell you why it works for me and kind of then think maybe, well, maybe it wouldn't work for someone of a different personality type. One reason it works for me is because I tend to be a workaholic and I joke with Ken that my work is actually my primary partner, or maybe he's sharing that status with work. <laughs> but I have had monogamous partners who were jealous of my career. They were jealous of my work. They wanted me to always prioritize them first and foremost and put them first. So I think that for people who really, I, this, this is such a negative word, but yes, but people who are so codependent and there are nicer ways to say that, but that they really need their person to be there 24 <laughs> seven and they're so wrapped up in them. They just can't bear to let them go for a day for then. Yeah, they shouldn't be doing polyamory. But for those of us who need to be able to dive into work and not see our partner for days at a time and not feel guilty about it, polyamory works great. For people who feel, you know, who have this concept of romance, which I'm not saying it's wrong, but some people have a concept of romance that your person has to be your person. You complete me. You're my better half. You're my best friend in every sense. You fulfill every need. You know, you're my sexual partner. You're my best friend. We enjoy the same activities. Isn't this wonderful? If that's what someone's craving, they may not like polyamory. Because people who appreciate polyamory also kind of appreciate the concept that we don't get all our needs met with one person. And so, for example, my primary partner, as much as I love him and I've been gushing about him, he's a homebody. He doesn't like to go out and do the things I like to do. 
And I still like to go out and do those things, not just with another friend, but with a date. You know, it's fun for me to go to a play and hold hands with somebody. So yeah, if somebody feels like this romantic, you know, fairy tale, I've got to find my everything in my one person. I need my person. It's just, you know, that's their framework and that's what they want and that's okay, but they're not going to really find polyamory satisfying. People who are really prone to jealousy shouldn't do it because jealousy does happen. People who can't communicate shouldn't do it (laughs) because like I've been emphasizing, it's almost anything's possible if you can communicate openly with your partner about it. But if you can't share your feelings, if you can't express your insecurities, then, then you shouldn't be trying it. But yeah, for those who are good at communication, who are capable of being respectful and empathetic to their partner, I think, you know, we, we, the world's our oyster. We can create the type of relationships that we want and we can make our own rule books. So if I can, uh, you know, Michelle asked you the psychologist question, so I get to ask the, the law professor question, right? Like what, what are some of the legal issues that are currently at the forefront of concern for poly individuals? And what are some of the solutions you favor? Because I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Yes. Thank you for that question, because I really didn't want this to be all about me. <laughs> um, and there are some real, I mean, there's so many legal issues that poly people and people in any kind of non-traditional relationship are facing. Some of it is just you know, discrimination, discrimination in the court system, judges who, who think that either being, and this happens with bisexual people too, that being bisexual polyamorous is, is a proxy for being unstable the kids aren't safe with us because we go from dating a man to dating a woman or we're dating multiple people. And so they equate that with a lack of stability or even like mental illness or emotional instability. And so, you know, so poly and bi people are constantly at risk of losing their children or losing visitation or custody rights. Discrimination in employment definitely happens. Discrimination in housing, discrimination in in a myriad of contexts. And then there's the fact that people who are in non-traditional relationships, people who are in polyamorous relationships are in the same footing as LGBT people were before same-sex marriage became legal. You know, we have to create from scratch protections for our families. If you have families with multiple parents, you have a few states that will respect those relationships and give them legal protections like California and Washington, Louisiana, Rhode Island. They explicitly recognize families with multiple parents. More states should because we've had, you know, step families all along. We've had multi-parent family structures all along and adoptive families. And yet the states are really slow to, to embrace that. So the Uniform Parentage Act does provide legal protections for legal recognition for more than two parents, um, which can extend to legal, to, to polyamorous families. But we still have a lot of progress to make on that front. So as far as solutions, I am really excited to be on the board of directors of the Chosen Family Law Center, which is the pioneer baby nonprofit organization that's saving the world. I mean, they're doing the work, the cutting edge work that no one else is doing, carving out legal protections for polyamorous families, for other non-traditional families. And so what they tend to do is they will help create contractual protections where statutory common law is silent. So they have what's called the Parentage Protection Project that helps create donor agreements and orders of parentage to protect non-biological parents who are in same-sex couples or LGBTQIA, polyamorous. They have the Poly Families Project 
which supports polyamorous families and parent groups of three people or more. And some of these groups are, for example, like gay couples, a gay male couple who, you know, has a surrogate, good lesbian friend, and they all want to be parents. And they don't want to have to choose which one of them doesn't get parental status. And so those kinds of multi-parent arrangements are not that uncommon in the LGBT community. And those are also being protected by some of these agreements. So the kinds of agreements you kind of have to create from scratch when the law doesn't automatically give them to you because you're married are like will and estate documents and co-parenting agreements, cohabitation agreements, medical advance directives, all of those things. So you do have this organization that is, you know, helping non-traditional families, including poly families, secure these rights in alternative ways, but they are also involved in exciting work actually getting ordinances passed. So in Massachusetts, they did get an anti-discrimination ordinance passed and domestic partnership protections that actually do extend to, you know, multi-parent households. And they are part of, they did this through a broader coalition called Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, which again, it's a baby brand new, you know, coalition of people. This is really work that's just starting. It's just happening. So it's kind of an exciting time. But it really is very similar to where same-sex couples were before marriage equality. Nancy, what else, from your professional vantage point, are the topics we didn't ask you about that you wanted to make sure we talk about that are important to these issues? Well, I do want to elaborate a bit more on the issue of bisexual erasure, which is something that I've written about extensively in my scholarship and I've spoken about over the years. And it's something that people really tend not to think about until I explain why it matters. And then people finally kind of wake up to the importance of it. So when I started first writing about bi erasure, I got the questions at academic conferences. Okay, but who cares? Why does this matter? Don't bisexuals get the same rights that trickle down, you know, to gays and lesbians? Why do you, why, why is this even important? Because I was kind of hammering away on the point that bisexuals are invisible even though we do constitute the majority of LGB people, you wouldn't know it from the face of LGBT rights litigation and discourse because we're not mentioned in a lot of court opinions, which just talk about gay and trans people or gays and lesbians. The B word just keeps being erased over and over again. But again, I keep getting asked, well, why does this matter? So I basically sat down and I did the work and I compiled some examples of where bi erasure actually does have life and death repercussions. So one of them is the example that I talked about in custody cases and and situations involving parental rights where bisexuality too often is viewed as a proxy for instability. So in, you know, family law situations, bisexuals are harmed because courts don't understand bisexuality is valid. But in a more extreme illustration of that is asylum law. So in asylum cases, Gay and bisexual people often do come to the States or to the UK seeking asylum because they live in countries where they're being physically persecuted, could even be killed for their sexual orientation. And too often bisexual asylum seekers are counseled by their attorneys to just say you're gay because otherwise the asylum adjudicators aren't going to understand and you're going to really be putting your petition at risk. And in fact, that does happen. There was a case in the UK where... A bisexual gentleman from Jamaica was seeking asylum. He had been persecuted, uh, you know, threatened with, with death because he dated men in Jamaica. He also had married a woman at one point. And the fact that he had married a woman made the asylum board really skeptical of him faking it. You're faking being gay. You're not really gay. And it wasn't until he produced actual photographs of himself being intimate with another man that they finally believed that he was really queer. So... 
it's actually a matter of life and death in those kinds of situations. And until bisexuals are included, are talked about, are acknowledged, then the courts and the asylum boards are not going to understand bisexuality. And, and the resulting harm is that people's lives, their children are endangered. And so bisexual erasure does matter. And so, you know, my first step in, in my scholarship has just been putting that evidence out there, showing people why it does matter. Here's, here's why this isn't just me whining about us not having a bee, you know, showing up in opinions. But then the second step is, is having that visibility, having that inclusion. And for years, I was begging just to have the, you know, the word bi included in LGBT rights discourse. And when I worked for the movement, I was somewhat successful in getting the briefs to be more um, inclusive over time. But what finally happened was, and I guess this is the, the way that I'm telling the narrative is I'm kind of like jumping back and forth chronologically, but the way this all started, the way that bylaw came to exist as an organization was because we were at the height of the same-sex marriage litigation. And Robbie Kaplan, who was the lawyer who was arguing the Windsor case, one of the two main same-sex marriage cases that won in the Supreme Court, was the keynote speaker for the Lavender Law Conference, which is the big annual LGBT rights caucus. And in her keynote speech, she said, you know, we should stop calling it same-sex marriage. Let's just call it what it is. Only gay people get into same-sex marriages. So we just need to call it gay marriage. And so I was cringing, you know, internally thinking, you know, once again, here I am being erased. And I had done so much work by that point, volunteering for the LGBT community. I had been fighting so hard for LGBT rights. But I was being erased yet again by the keynote speaker, you know, who is one of our fiercest advocates in the Supreme Court. And I always had this mix of emotions. Whenever I read a Supreme Court opinion affirming LGBT rights, I would be absolutely elated that the court was on our side and was doing the right thing at the same time that I'd look for that B word and once again, it wouldn't be there. So I was always a bit conflicted emotionally in how to respond to these opinions that on the one hand affirmed my rights, but on the other hand erased me as a person. So in that moment of frustration, after hearing, you know, bisexuals being erased yet again by our keynote speaker at the annual conference. After Robbie Kaplan spoke, Darcy Chemnitz, who's the executive director of the conference, and I used to be on her board of directors for her foundation. So I had raised money, you know, for this organization before. We, she knew me, you know, we, we had a good relationship. And she said, well, and she kind of opened up the conversation to the conference. And said, Let's focus on how can we be more um, inclusive and diverse in our in, in our conferencing in the future. And I raised my hand. I said, how about we start having some bisexual programming and it'd be more bi-inclusive. And on the spot bylaw was born because I had a, you know, about a half dozen people come up to me immediately afterwards saying, thank you for saying that. You know, we thought we were alone in our frustration and we created bylaw because bylaw had to happen. And from that point forward, it wasn't immediate, but we got the LGBT Bar Association to recognize that this is a need that had to be filled. So ever since then, they've been giving us annual programming. Um, we have a panel, we have a bylaw caucus. So this has been about 10 years. And flash forward 10 years, at last year's bylaw panel, we actually did have a roundtable where pretty much every major LGBT rights organization came to the table and said, here's how we're going to start being more bi-inclusive. And they went above and beyond what I had been asking for um, as far as just saying the B word. They said, no, we need to have bisexual plaintiffs front and center in our impact litigation. We need to consider in our discourse, how is this affecting the bisexual community? We need to recognize the intersectionality between you know, the bi community, people of color, because there is a lot of overlap there as well. It was really, really gratifying to finally you know, have that affirmation that 
just that these issues are valid and that they matter. So that's kind of the journey of, of bylaw. We still are not a funded organization. We're not a structured organization. Bisexual organizations get less than half of 1% of the funding of all the LGBT organizations in the country. Uh, we're very not organized or funded. And so that also perpetuates the lack of visibility. And in addition to the legal harms that bisexuals face when we're not understood or recognized is there are a lot of disparities in the mental health, the physical health, the poverty rates that bisexual people suffer. And a lot of that is because of lack of community and lack of resources. And so again, that's perpetuated when we're not counted, when we're not acknowledged, when foundations don't see us and recognize that we need help, you know, the disparities just keep compounding. And because there is a lot of overlap, um, there are more people of color who are bisexual than gay and lesbian. I mean, this doesn't just affect, you know, cis white people. There's a lot of trans people are bisexual. A lot of people of color are bisexual. So there are a lot of different demographics of people who very much need to be seen and to have resources. And because bisexuals are invisible, a lot of people are being harmed, but people just don't really think about these issues. So it, that's kind of been my, my journey and, and my battle over the past decade. And I'm trying to pass the torch now. I'm feeling a little bit older <laughs> and, and ready for the next generation who has a lot of fire and energy to take this, you know, this challenge wherever they want to go with it. And I don't really have, I'm, I'm not sure what the next chapter is. I don't know that labels need to be as important as I've made them be. You know, maybe that's not the battle that the next generation wants to fight. Maybe it should be more intersectional and, and holistic. And I, I don't know, but I do know that there's still a lot of discrimination in a lot of different contexts and from a lot of different directions that bisexuals face. And it is still very much an uphill battle. So I do, you know, I've written a number of articles about bisexual erasure that I do encourage people to read just to kind of wrap their minds around some of the issues and at least try to understand and be a bit empathetic. Thank you. Anything else that you would want to add before we end our conversation today? Well, when I think about, you know, the next generation of, of lawyers, um, of advocates, of people who are fighting for, you know, the rights of, of, you know, bi people, poly people, queer people, all of that too is intertwined with what's happening with reproductive rights and what happened at the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade and their Dobbs decision. So I teach a course at California Western. It's a seminar course, um, sexuality, gender identity, and the law. And traditionally, which I say kind of laughing because traditionally this course has been about gender identity and sexual orientation. I mean, obviously it's kind of a, a newer subject matter to be taught at, at law schools, but traditionally that has been its focus. But when Dobbs came out, I realized that the Dobbs decision isn't just a decision that overturns Roe versus Wade and Casey. It's not just a decision that attacks abortion rights and abortion access, but it attacks legal protections for intimate relationships across the board. LGBT people are not overreacting when they're afraid, when they say they're afraid that, you know, same-sex marriage is going to be next, that LGBT rights are going to be next. Because in his concurrence, Justice Thomas was very clear about the fact that if he had his way, the court would have done away with fundamental rights altogether for any kind of intimate, you know, relationships and protections, which is kind of ironic because that would, in theory, include interracial marriage. But there's a lot that's at stake. There's a lot that's at stake. And 
And I don't know what's going to happen in the courts. You know, we're kind of stuck with the Supreme Court for a while. And it really uh, is up to the next generation of lawyers to try to repair some of the damage that, <laughs> that my generation has done. Because we didn't fight hard enough to secure reproductive rights. We were complacent. We did take for granted that Roe would always be good law. And so we can't count the Supreme Court anymore to protect our rights. We can't just assume that the court's not going to backtrack on same-sex marriage and on other protections for intimate relationships. We can't assume really anything as far as our legal protection. So voting is everything. (laughs) You know, we've got to vote to secure the courts. We've got to vote to pass legislation to protect us because we can't just count on the judiciary anymore. But all of these issues are absolutely intertwined because when the court did recognize abortion rights, it did so in the context of a longer line of precedent in which intimate personal relationships were protected. And, and that same building block, that same doctrinal building block and, and line of precedent is what led to same-sex marriage. It is absolutely all interconnected. So when I taught this class, instead of just teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity, I started and finished with Dobbs. And throughout the whole course, I kept coming back to, okay, but what does Dobbs mean for these rights? You know, and, 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 and really challenge the, the students to think about both what the implications of the Supreme Court's overturning Roe meant for other rights, but also what they were going to do about it as future lawyers. I didn't have a whole lot of reassurances for them other than to challenge them and to let them know that their, you know, their law degrees would empower them to help decide what the future is going to be. But so much is up in the air now, and I don't know what's going to happen next. It's obviously a scary time for a lot of people in the country right now, including uh, for people who are LGBTQ+, given everything that's happening and a lot of their rights being restricted in a number of states and to some extent nationwide. Did you have any advice to help people hang in there and have hope for better days? Yes. So... This is a really difficult time because the truth is we have a court that's willing to throw away fundamental rights that we've relied on for decades and to force us into compulsory pregnancy against our will. So, you know, just when democracy was fragile enough, so many are now on the verge of losing faith in the highest court in the land. And that breaks my heart because as a constitutional law geek and a major in political theory and constitutional democracy and a lawyer whose work and personal life have often been grounded in my faith in our constitutional democracy in our courts. I'm heartbroken too, but the truth is we have recovered from much worse chapters in American history than this, especially those in this country who are not privileged and white and male and cisgender and straight. You know, the hurdles that have been faced by so many people in this country have at times been much more dire than what we're facing right now. So our history as Americans has never been one that's grounded in or reflected true equality and true liberty and true justice. Often it's really been lip service and ideals that we're just striving for. So it is up to future generations to finally have this country live up to its promises. And I don't know what's going to happen. It's largely determined by the makeup of our courts and Congress, but that's why you know voting is everything these days in protecting our rights and making sure that our constitution, our constitutional democracy is one we can be proud of and have faith in. And I am excited by the next generation of lawyers. And I think that they are (laughs) fired up and ready to face that challenge. So I applaud them and doing what they can to take our country back. 
Thank you so much, uh, Nancy, for being with us today and, and sharing these thoughts. Um, and I'm sure that everyone has, uh, everyone has learned a lot. I know that I have. So uh, it's really been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your having me here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. Know the. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray the cost to run the podcast. You can help us out at Swipe Strangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carl Sferini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuku for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.